If you would, take your Bible, go to the book of 1 John, chapter number 2, 1 John. And if you're new around here or not familiar with your Bible, uh, we're not speaking of the Gospel of John. That would be toward the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But rather, the epistle of 1 John, you'll find it just right, uh, not too far in front of the beginning of the book of Revelation. And so uh, that'll hopefully help you. I would give you a page number, but every Bible's different, and that just doesn't help unless we all have the same uh, edition of the Bible. So 1 John chapter number 2, and um, I grew up, I remember as a kid that a lot of times uh, black and white on the television, there would be uh, Perry Mason. I wasn't a huge fan of Perry Mason as a kid. I know a lot of people were, and I think that uh, for me it was just as a as a young boy, I didn't understand what was going on. But I got I got to say, Matlock, I like Matlock, not as good as Andy Griffith, but uh, certainly uh, Matlock was pretty good. And I remember uh, I remember Quincy. He wasn't an attorney, but he was a medical examiner, and so all of those legal shows were. Somebody was smart enough to make sure that justice was done. Uh, who doesn't like something like that? Amen. Somebody who had honesty and integrity and would uh, have the ability and the intelligence and the wisdom to make sure that the right thing was accomplished. Uh, everybody enjoys a who done it, especially when uh, righteousness and justice prevails. Now, much of the entertainment today is not like that. And uh, that's sad, and it's a reflection, not only is it a reflection of uh, a corrupt society, but I want to also warn you, it, it is a corrupting factor in our society. Hollywood tries to convince people that we don't create culture, we only reflect culture. And uh, that is a blatant lie, because uh, what we see, what we hear... Uh, all of those things, they go into our uh, our minds and they have a corrupting effect on the human hearts. Remember what the Lord said about a uh, just lot, a righteous man, whose soul was vexed by the unlawful deeds day by day of Sodom and Gomorrah. So certainly, uh, certainly evil communications do corrupt good manners. In 1 John chapter number 2, in verse number 1, the Apostle John tells us, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want to speak this morning on the subject of we have an advocate. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for our advocate. Thank you for these that have come today and those that are listening over live stream. We pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit of God would bless us today. Lord, that we would speak the truth in love, that we would communicate the Word of God as we ought to with boldness with compassion and charity. Lord, help us to make good use of our time. Help us to speak clearly. 
Help us, Lord, to not say things that would distract from what you want to accomplish. May the Holy Spirit of God lead us as we stand behind this pulpit and, Lord, from our heart desire to be ambassadors for Christ. Lord, what a huge honor to be your spokesman today, and yet what a huge burden of responsibility. Lord, we confess to you today that without your help, uh, God, we are certainly uh, incapable of doing anything of any eternal value. We pray for anyone that's listening or will listen later that does not have an advocate that has never been born again. God, we pray that the Holy Spirit of God would break past the hardness of their heart, uh, break past the, the a seared conscience or perhaps maybe uh, just procrastination, putting it off or maybe fear, not knowing what to do, not knowing what people will think. And God, may the Holy Spirit of God just clear the deck of all of that satanic clutter as the devil would try to snatch the Word of God from people's hearts. And God, uh, bring someone to Christ as a result of the, the message today. And I pray, Father, for everyone who is saved. Lord, what a tremendous doctrine that you have presented to us in this passage. And God, uh, may we recognize it, understand it, and above all, may we put it into practice in our daily life. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle John begins this text with the phrase, My little children. Now the Bible lists the following stages of spiritual growth. No doubt many of you have come across these particular categories of Christian growth. First of all, the Bible refers to babes. In the book of 1 Corinthians 3.1, Paul says to the church at Corinth, he said, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. He said, "For uh, you're not able to bear it because you are babes in Christ. You're immature. You should be able to handle it, but you're carnal. And carnality will certainly always stunt spiritual growth. doesn't matter how much you learn the Bible. If you are carnal and selfish, your spiritual growth, you will begin spiritually to behave like a baby. Then, of course, 1 Peter 2, 2 says that we should, even adults, should desire the sincere milk of the Word of God that we may grow thereby, and desiring that sincere milk as babes in Christ. The second category that the Bible tells us of is little children. And, of course, the Apostle Paul was concerned about the Christians in Galatia. They had been doctrinally corrupted. They had added works to their faith in Christ, and they had this uh, kind of amalgamation of faith in Christ and keeping the, the Jewish law and circumcision and all of these uh, observing the Sabbath and so forth. And Paul said, my little children of whom I travail in birth until Christ be formed in you. And then also, uh, he also says in the book of Galatians that we are all children in Christ Jesus. And of course, that's number three, and that's found in Galatians 3.26. And who can forget Romans 8, where the Bible says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, number four, the Bible refers to young men. And then number five refers to fathers. Both of those are found in 1 John 2.13. Number six, 
The Bible tells us of elders. And of course, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 5 says, Ye younger, submit yourself to the elders. Elders is a title often referred to uh, or is referring to pastors or bishops, but in many cases there are elders in a church that are at a higher spiritual level than others. And you know what? You don't have to be a pastor to have the quality of Christian growth and maturity uh, of any elder. And may God raise up more elders in the body of Christ, men who are seasoned and patient and understanding and know how to live and walk godly and not full of pride and selfishness. And then, of course, number seven, the Bible refers to as the aged. Titus chapter two refers to aged men as well as aged women. These would be uh, kind of the people, and you know, there's not necessarily an age factor in these spiritual uh, levels of maturity, but we were talking last night, I think, uh, with one of the men and talking about how in the Old Testament, if somebody's really old, the Bible refers to them as well-stricken in, in years. And uh, maybe, maybe some of you understand what that means, and I'm certainly at the beginning stages of understanding what that means. We went on a bike ride the other day, took Anna for her 30th birthday, and we went up to the Virginia Creeper Trail. And I know if you've never been there, if you've never heard of it, it's about a 19-mile bike ride, and most of it is kind of very gradually downhill, so it's nothing real extreme or intense. But, you know, from the first pedal of that bike trip, my right knee hurt. And I thought, it's just got to loosen up. It didn't loosen up. And this was last Thursday. And it's hurting as I stand here. Go figure. It, things like that just happen. And I know that many of you are just saying, oh, preacher, you don't even know what you're talking about yet. I, I, I understand. But uh, the Bible refers to as the aged. So these are all different Bible terminology, we often refer to people, we classify them as, as infants and toddlers and juniors and junior high and teenagers and so forth. And uh, certainly we could use those to make a spiritual equivalent. But these, is, these are Bible terminology that God refers to uh, as far as different stages of spiritual growth. I'll say more about that here in just a moment. Uh, number one, I, I want to talk about our identity this morning, how we see ourselves versus how God sees us. When John addresses the uh, readers of this epistle, and I remind all of us that even though there were specific people that John was writing to, the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so while the entire Bible isn't doctrinally written to us, the entire Bible is profitable to all of us. And so, yes, we can make personal application of, uh, of this writing and John referring to us as little children. But notice in verse number 1, he says, My little children, these things I write unto you, but notice in the second sentence, he says, and if any man sin, he doesn't refer to them consistently as little children. 
And I believe there's a reason behind that because I don't believe that the Apostle John is referring to spiritual maturity. But rather, I believe he's referring to our identity. You know, we may be mature elders. We may be in that category of the aged women and the aged men. But we still have the identity of little children with God as our Father. doesn't matter how old you are or how long you've been saved. doesn't matter how many battles you've won or lost. We are all little children, and the better, the more that we see ourselves as little children with God as our Father, I believe the more humble we will stay and the closer that we'll be to our Heavenly Father. I think of what Jesus said in John thirteen thirty three, speaking to his disciples, grown men, rugged fishermen, and he said, little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come, so now I say to you. I believe we read that verse last week in our resurrection message. We talked about the fellowship of the resurrection. Our identity, how we see ourselves versus how God sees us. Satan will do everything that he can within his power to pervert our self-awareness. He'll tell you you're bad but he won't specifically tell you what you did that was bad. He'll remind you of your past sins, your failures. In fact, he'll even remind you of the sins that you've already gotten right with God about. Since we're right here, look at 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, we could go on and on this morning. We could preach a whole message of how that when God forgives us, that forgiveness is absolute and complete. I mean, the Bible teaches us clearly that God forgets our sins. He puts them in the sea of His forgetfulness. He removes them from us as far as the east is from the west. You say, God, remember that sin that I committed, and if we have gotten it right with Him... It doesn't matter if we got got it right with him five minutes ago or five years ago. God, remember? And God's go, no, I don't remember. I distinctly remember forgetting about that sin. And that's the way our holy, righteous, merciful, gracious Heavenly Father deals with his children. When we confess it, and, and by the way, let me remind you that that word confess is the declaration of something that is so, something that is true. It cannot be false. It means that we're coming clean and transparent with God. We're not saying, God, I'm sorry, but... You know, kind of like many marriage relationships are. Honey, I'm sorry that I said that, but you made me angry. You know, the, the kind of throwing in the blame game or justification... You know, hey, I'm sorry that I said that to you, but I didn't get any sleep last night. No, just say I'm sorry and be sorry about it. Amen? Come clean. Confess it. Own it. Take responsibility. And when we do that before God, guess what God does? He promises that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, the devil is going to bring up your past, even if you have genuinely, sincerely gotten right with God. You know what religion, the, the devil loves even Christian religion. The devil loves a religion where you go in and you confess to an earthly minister, a father, if you will. The devil loves that. The devil loves when uh, that particular religious leader gives you penance and gives you some things that you can do in order to atone for your own sin. Because human nature is, well, I don't feel clear until I have done something to pay for my sin. And that is, you know, that, that religion, it might make sense to the corrupt Adamic nature, but listen, it is corrupt in God's eyes. We cannot atone for our own sins. You couldn't, you couldn't do enough harm to yourself in order to pay for one sin because you are not holy. And only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from all sin. And what we have to do is we have to step back and say, you know what? I cannot pay for my own sin. I can do nothing because what needs to be done to atone for my sin has already been done and it was complete and it was finished on the cross of Calvary some 2,000 years ago. We don't help the Lord save us. We put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ and what He did on Calvary's cross. Our identity, Satan is going to do everything he can to pervert your self-awareness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse number 20, Paul tells these believers, he says, Brethren, be not children in understanding. Howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. You know what the Lord's saying? In malice, we should be children. Children are innocent. Children don't know that children are naive, are they not? They're ignorant because there's so many things out there in the world corrupting things that they don't even have a clue about. When it comes to malice, when it comes to wickedness, when it comes to worldliness, Paul says, look, be children in that, but don't be children in understanding. And you know what? Too many of God's people today put too much stock in their feelings and not enough stock in the understanding of the Word of God. Well, preacher, you don't understand. I just don't feel like God's forgiven me. So? what? Listen, I'm not going to be compassionate of your feelings when your feelings are messing you up. That's not compassion. That's not compassion at all. When our feelings are lying against the promise of God's Word, we need to look in the mirror and say, listen, my feelings are messed up. And I've got to start seeing myself, my identity, the way that God sees me. When our identity is inaccurate, you know what happens? We become our worst enemy. You know, they say that only a fool represents himself in court. You ever wondered why that is? It's because he is emotionally involved. He has feelings and perception that hinders his case. He needs someone 
who both understands him, is on his side, and is an expert in legal matters. Uh, By the way, someone also who knows the judge. Because ultimately, what happens to us is in the hands of the judge. The sooner that we start seeing ourselves as little children, our identity, the way that God sees us, little children that are innocent, that are clean, that when we get clean, God doesn't say, oh, I knew you weren't going to make it. I knew you were going to mess up. Listen, you might have had earthly parents that were just waiting for you to mess up. Almost like some kind of game that they were playing so that they could lord over you and have control over you. You may have had parents that no matter how hard you tried, it just never was good enough. Do not allow the devil or your memories to cloud your perception of our righteous Heavenly Father. Listen, the very best dad that ever lived is not even not even close, not even a drop in the bucket, not even a drop in the ocean in comparison to how good and how kind and how merciful and how that our Heavenly Father, He wants us not only to see ourselves as His little children, but He wants us to live our life with that childlike humility and dependency upon Him. And so John starts out by talking about our identity as little children. Number two, he talks about, he's insinuating, if you will, that we have some adversaries. You don't need an advocate if you don't have an adversary. And the adversaries that we have, I refer to this morning as the circle of opposition. You know, if you've ever read any books about war you know that it is almost impossible to win a two-fronted battle. You know, uh, David did it once. I think Joshua did it once. Uh, We find that uh, um, Hitler wasn't able to accomplish it. In some ways, America fought a two-fronted battle in World War II. We had the Pacific Front and we had the European Front. But let's face it, America wasn't in that battle We weren't by ourselves. There were many allies. That's why they called it a world war. Fighting a two-fronted battle is almost impossible to win, but we have opposition that isn't on two fronts. It's 360 degrees around us. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 5, Paul talked about the frustration sometimes that we feel in the Christian life. He said, for when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. I say 360 degrees, but yet the reality of it is our battles are not only outward, but they're also inward. Life, the Christian life. Listen, if you, if you think that getting saved, if you think, hey, I'm going to accept Christ as my Savior, and then all my problems will be over. I would be lying to you to tell you that if you get saved, that everything's going to be wonderful. In fact, I'm going to just warn you that if you get saved, you may have more troubles than you ever even imagined. But I will say this, there'll be different kinds of troubles. 
and there'll be better troubles. They'll be the kind that God works them together for good in your life. They'll be the kind that will draw you closer to the Lord, will purge out the dross in your life and bring out the gold. They're the kind of things that while they may be very, very difficult for a season, you'll be able to look back and say, you know what? Now I see what God was doing in my life. That was not pleasant. That was not enjoyable. But thank God that suffering came from a heavenly Father who knows me and loves me and knows what's best rather than suffering coming from my own stupidity and my own mistakes. Those are the kinds that are very difficult to live with when we suffer and we look back and you go, why did, why did I do that? Sometimes we end up beating ourselves up when God's not beating us up. And then the devil recognizes that and guess what he does? He piles on and he's awfully good about that. Who is against us? Well, first of all, ourselves. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul's talking to Timothy, a young preacher, and you know, I wish that many of our stripe of preachers would get a hold of this particular admonition. It says in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Now the previous verse, we won't look at it for sake of time, but it says the servant of the Lord must not strive. I wonder how much Bible-believing preaching has been filled with strife from the man of God who's basically just trying to lord over God's people with fear and intimidation and threatenings. And, you know, I don't find, I'm sure that there were some old prophets of God that when they said, flee from the wrath to come, they probably weren't saying it effeminately. Oh, excuse me. I guarantee you that, you know, some of these modern preachers today, uh, I, I wonder about them. I mean, some of the preaching today is so soft, wouldn't you agree? I mean, not a whole lot of backbone, not a whole lot of courage. And I don't know how much of it is an overreaction to some preachers that get up and they have to roar and they have to yell and scream and have veins popping out in their neck. And I'm not saying that that's always wrong. There are men who are just passionate, and that's their personality. But I also know some people, it's like, I'm trying to create fear so that they will do what I think that they ought to do. You know, the Bible says that God speaks in a still, small voice. And the bottom line is, God says the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, patient. And then he goes on to say, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Listen, you're looking at a preacher that I want everybody listening today to respond to the message. But I don't want anybody to respond to the messenger. Because if you respond to the messenger, it's going to be short-lived help. It's not going to last. And eventually, you know what you're going to do? You're going to find fault with the messenger because there's plenty there. And what we need to do is we need to look past the messenger and we need to see the message and the truth. And we need to listen to what the Holy Spirit of God 
is saying. And you know what? If our hearts are open and, and we are right with God and we want to be right with God, listen, the Holy Spirit will indeed speak to us. It may not be during this church service today, but maybe a seed will be sown in your heart and you'll be driving to work this week and something that was said that was true, the Holy Spirit will just pour a little water on that little sun will shine on it and all of a sudden it'll start to sprout and it'll start to bear fruit in our life. You know, that's the kind of things when we, with that gentleness and that sweetness and the Holy Spirit drawing us, I'm not saying there's not a time when the Holy Spirit of God doesn't say, listen, you better get right or the axe is getting ready to fall. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. There is a time for that. But I'm talking about as little children, many times we end up opposing ourselves. And sometimes it's just that meekness and that gentleness and seeing the truth. I believe that the Holy Spirit of God can do the work without me trying to add to it with my personality. Then, of course, we have the devil and the devil's. They certainly oppose us. He is the accuser of the brethren. I mean, think of all of the heartache and suffering that Satan caused Job, the servant of God. Now, God was, uh, listen, God was not influenced ignorantly. God had a bigger plan and a bigger, bigger purpose for Job's life, but certainly Satan was at the root of all of Job's suffering. And then the world is against us. I mean, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life, they are all certainly an enemy that compass about from every direction. And boy, we live in a day and age where it's impossible to escape from this world. The influences of it are everywhere. My prayers, my heart goes out to those of you that are raising children in this day and age and in this culture that we live in. You have your work cut out for you. It's way more difficult for you than it was for me. And it was way more difficult for me than it was my parents, and certainly more than my grandparents. Parents, God has entrusted you with these little souls. And listen, while we cannot control their every move, while they have a free will, they are under our watch care, and we better do everything that we can to make sure that we give them a fighting chance to be right with God, to be saved, to not be corrupted by sin. Not talking about smothering. Not talking about being a helicopter mom. I'm talking about protecting our kids and protecting our homes and doing everything we can to keep them away from those harmful influences because they are everywhere. And the last adversary, I think this one might surprise you just a little bit. It's the law. Listen, I love the Ten Commandments, don't you? Except for when I break them. I wish the Ten Commandments were in every classroom and every schoolroom in this country. I wish the Ten Commandments were on the front page of every newspaper. I mean, so that everyone is reminded of what those commandments are. Now, can the commandments save a person? No, but they certainly will reveal a person's need to be saved. 
And you know what? There's got to be some kind of a connection when the Bible says that the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. There's got to be a connection to that, to a society, a generation today that doesn't even see their need for Jesus Christ. I mean, we can preach and say, if you don't accept Christ, you're going to die and go to hell. And you know what? People's like, well, what's, what's wrong with that guy? Did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Why is, why is that preacher so cranky? Why has he got to be so negative and so judgmental? Because it's true. Well, I, I'm, a, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. You know what the problem is? Is we just we don't look at the Ten Commandments. You don't get past commandment number one if you're really honest and say, "Wow, I'm I am I have fallen way short of the glory of God." But people don't recognize that. We don't say, oh, it's okay, no big deal. And that's the problem. But the law is our adversary, believe it or not. Romans 7 and verse number 9, Paul says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. I think it's very probable that this has something to do with the age of accountability. Verse 10, and the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. The law ends up being our adversary. Why? Because of who we are, our nature. The law is perfect and just and holy, but we are not. We came into this world with a corrupt nature that we inherited. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil, oh, it was pleasant to look at. And it was a tree desired to make one wise. And boy, did it not make man wise. Oh, we know and we understand some things that God did not intend for us to know and understand. It's called evil. It's called sin. And God wanted us to be innocent for all of eternity, but we messed it up. And our nature, we look at the Ten Commandments and say, that is the standard. But every single one of us can find at least one of those commandments that we have broken the holy law of God. Thou shalt not, and we did. That makes us sinners. And I got news for you, while there are big sinners and little sinners, there are people who sin a lot, people who sin a little, you're still in the category of sinner, and you have fallen short of the glory of God, and without that sin being atoned for, even the one little one that's on your record, without it, you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. That's how holy our God is. You say, well, how could He do that? Because He's holy. You say, well, that's not a very good God. Um, You know, you you ever thought about Calvary's cross there? He paid the price for us. I'll say more about that here in just a minute. Number three, I want to talk finally, and this is the message. I want to talk about our advocate. Somebody, please help me. I've messed up my life. My sin has finally come back to haunt me. 
I'm buried, I'm drowning. Everything that I've done has come back to haunt me. The chickens have come home to roost. Life is not what I expected. The pleasures of sin season is over. And it's time for reckoning. The purpose of the teaching of the advocacy of Christ is primarily, look at it with me once again, verse number 1. He says, I write these things unto you that ye sin not. Understanding the advocacy, Jesus Christ being our advocate, understanding it has the purpose that we sin not. But I want you to notice the conjunction that follows. Notice it says, and if any man sin. It doesn't say, but if any man sin. It says, and if any man sin. Here's something that we all need to know, and that is this. We don't have to sin if we're born again. Now listen, if you're not saved, uh, there is no way, you have no hope to live righteously according to God's standards. There is no way. You can't even, I don't even believe you can make it a whole day because you don't have anything righteous and holy. You may do the right things outwardly, but you're always going to have a self-serving motive behind it. You're going to be motivated by pride, by competition, trying to excel and be better than others or something. There's always going to be something that is wicked inside of you, even when you do good. But a born-again believer, if you are saved and you've experienced the grace of God, the good news is is that you don't have to sin. God has provided everything that we need to live a sinless life. I'm going to bust the theology of some of you good old boys. But this, this mentality that, oh, you know, we... Everybody sins like it's no big deal. Not according to the Word of God. According to the Word of God, we can live sinless. Some of you are like, what? That's not what Grandpa said. It's what the Word of God teaches. But here's what we also need to know. And if any man sin, we can, but we don't or won't. That's just the reality. I'm telling you the truth here this morning. Listen, there are some who believe that when you get saved, then you can live, a, live sinlessly perfect. That's, that's not true. I mean, you can, but they, they believe that you achieve this, that, I mean, you're not even going to be tempted. I, I think that if we walk close to the Lord all of the time, then certainly that power of sin is broken. But they almost make it something that it's not. Or they do make it something that it's not. And then you got others, it's just like, oh, sin's no big deal. We're all sinners. I've asked people this before. Do you believe that you're a sinner? Oh, yeah, everybody is. No, that's not what I'm talking about. We're not talking about what everybody does here. We're talking about what you do, what you are. And until we take individual responsibility, there's no hope of our salvation. We need to be reminded of how horrible sin is. It is the cause of death, divorce, disease, dysfunction, devastation, depression, disillusion, disappointment, 
and uh, words that begin with every other letter of the alphabet. (laughs) Above all, it caused Christ's suffering on the cross. That's how horrible that sin is. We take it lightly, but I remind you that the God of John 3.16... For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The same God is the, that God is the same God of Revelation 20, verse 11 and 12. And I saw a great white throne and Him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. Now I don't know about you, but the thought of just being one-on-one, standing before a holy God, a holy judge, with everything else, all of the entrapments, all of the, there's nowhere to hide. I mean, have you ever been around somebody who's like, I wish I could just kind of hide? There's going to be no pulpit to hide behind, no pew to hide behind. It's just nothing even exists except for the throne with a holy, righteous God, and we see ourselves standing there, nothing but us and Him. That's a terrible, terrible thought. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And it goes on to say that death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. That's the same God of John 3.16. We need to understand it. This fearful judge is also our Heavenly Father, who, by the way, wants us to have fellowship with Him. You know, we didn't, for sake of time, we didn't read 1 John chapter number 1, but most of that chapter is talking about our fellowship with our Heavenly Father. You should read it when you go home today. How would you feel if your worst sins were caught on secret camera? and broadcast to the entire world, including being broadcast to the ones uh, to whom they would hurt the most. You know, some of our secret private sins, uh, some, many of them, most of them are against somebody. And how would you feel today if some secret camera saw that and they sent that to whoever it would hurt the most, they sent it an email to them, an attachment, a Facebook post. That would be pretty troubling, would it not? And I'd like to remind you that sin always hurts someone. Always. Oh, my sin's just hurting me. There is not an exception. Eventually, or whether it be On the surface or under the surface, sin always hurts other people. I read a headline in my Fox News app this morning. Some mother in California had a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a six-month-old baby. Her mother, who lived with them, worked the night shift. She comes home yesterday morning, and she finds... A horrible, horrible sight. I'm not even going to tell you, we've got children in here, but that mother, that mother did something that was so evil and wicked, 
And whatever her reason is, whether it's satanic or selfish or whatever the case may be, that is a wicked, wicked person. And I think about what that mama did, and I think, you know what? She's going to stand before a righteous judge. And I have no, I mean, I don't have any problem, at least today. Don't fault me for not being compassionate, but you know what? That, that mother, what she did to those children, you know, she, we would certainly say she deserves to go to hell. But you know, we look at things and the bottom line is we all deserve to go to hell. You don't have to do something that heinous to be a sinner and to fall short of the glory of God. You cannot lie or blame your way out of your sin. You're busted. You're shamed. You're guilty. We know God has promised not to forsake us, but when we sin, we feel like He has. You know, some of the things that we have done, and we know that God knows, they're the kind of things that if somebody did them to us, we'd have a hard time forgiving them. And so our conscience torments us because in our self-righteousness, we assume that God would never forgive us because if somebody did that to us, we'd have a hard time forgiving them. Job, in his frustration, spoke of a daysman, an umpire, an arbitrator, a mediator, if you will. In Job 9.33, he said, Neither is there any daysman betwixt us. That daysman was the advocate that showed up on the day of court. That's where the term daysman came from that he might lay his hand upon us both. Job wanted an audience before a holy God, someone that could, uh, he he wanted to know, why is all of this happening? If I could just plead with God, and don't you know that Job and his suffering, I mean, he's, he's examining his own life. He's got three friends that are playing devil's advocate, and they're certainly examining every potential sin, fault, and failure, and weakness in Job's life. And it's just heaping guilt and frustration upon Job. And he cries out, God, if there was just someone that could mediate, but if I could just get my argument before you, if you could just hear my case. The Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus as our only mediator, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Sorry, Roman Catholicism, Mary's not a mediatrix. It's a lie, it's not true. You, you pray to her, you can pray to her, to her all that you want, but she can't hear. That's man-made. And by the way, if you studied that out in history, you'd find that that's just a Christian repackaging of Baal worship and paganism that was going on before. Constantine took pagan religion and Christianity and he just amalgamated them together. Our text today refers to Jesus as our advocate. If you've ever been in serious trouble, you know what it's like to want and to need an advocate. I noticed just the other day that uh, O.J. Simpson got out of prison a couple years ago. I didn't know that. I thought he was still in prison. Uh, He's out of prison. And you know, if you were around during his original murder trial, 
then uh, you remember that, uh, boy, he had a team of advocates, did he not? Between his legal team's theatrics, if the globe doesn't fit, you must acquit. I'm sure many of you remember that. Between their theatrics, between the threat of public riots that no doubt weighed upon those jurors, and the incompetency of the law enforcers and prosecutors, I would have to say it sure looks like to me that he got away with brutal murder. Sometimes we would say that, well, you never get away with it because your conscience is going to torment you. You know, there are sociopaths and people that are so narcissistic that their conscience doesn't bother them at all. Nevertheless, just like all of us, his day's coming. And he and we will all stand before the judge. Romans 2.16, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Notice in our text that our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's not like O.J. Simpson's legal team. They were not righteous. They weren't honest. They were manipulative. But our advocate is righteous. Three people were asked the question, what is integrity? One man who was a philosopher answered, Integrity is how you act when no one else is watching. A second person, a businessman, said, Integrity is, uh, it means that when you shake hands on a deal, no written contract is ever needed. The third person, a lawyer, looked this way and that and said, What do you want it to mean? That's often the way that we view an advocate. But Jesus Christ, our advocate, is a righteous advocate. And in conclusion here this morning, I want to draw out something that is extremely important when it comes to our advocate. Our passage, our text says that he is the propitiation for our sins. He's the propitiation. Propitiation is the price that was paid. You know, when the price, when the the consequences of the law are fulfilled, when the payment is made, then the law is satisfied. The law is, uh, then we are no longer at odds with the law or the judge because the price has been paid. That's propitiation. Because of that price being paid, it makes us favorably inclined. I mean, if the judge says, the, listen, the law, the demands of the law have been met, the judge no longer has to look at us with enmity, but rather he can look at us with love and with friendship. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, those of us that are saved, but also for the sins of the whole world. Listen, Calvinism twists the truth with too much human reasoning, not enough Bible-believing. Listen, I'm not against uh, human reasoning. There's some things we got to think about. We got to try to figure out. But listen, if human reasoning trumps what the scripture actually comes out and says, this says that he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. There's no limited atonement. 
anyone and everyone, whosoever will, can be, can partake in the propitiation, the payment of our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have an advocate, but you will never receive him until you accept the fact that you need him. That's why he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, but the only ones that benefit are those who receive him. In an old Dennis the Menace cartoon, the scene is bedtime prayers. And here's Dennis the Menace kneeling with his hands folded at his bed, looking up toward heaven. And he has on his pajamas and a cowboy hat and a toy six-shooter strapped at his side. Dennis says, I'm here to turn myself in. You know, from the heart, that's where we need to get with God. God, I'm here to turn myself in. Romans 3.19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter number 8. And we'll see the value of our advocate because the adversaries that we are encompassed, that we are compassed with, 360 degrees, adversaries without and within, the devil, the world, the flesh, ourself, the law. Listen, without God's grace, without the propitiation, we are in trouble. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Listen, if you struggle with false guilt and the devil constantly beating you up over your past, over your failures, doesn't mean it matter if it's past yesterday, you should get familiar with this passage of Scripture. Remind yourself and remind the devil, look, God, because of Jesus Christ, because of Calvary's cross, He's for me. You can be against me all you want, but I don't care, devil. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm not a big Ernest Hemingway fan. I, I kind of like the little short story on the old man in the sea. But uh, I know that Ernest Hemingway had a very... Uh, much of his writings were very narcissistic and very 
fatalistic, very corrupt, if you will. But he wrote a story about a father and son who had a serious misunderstanding. In the story, the boy finally runs away from home. The father, however, is not content to let his son go. In an effort to find the boy, the father puts an ad in the Madrid, Spain newspaper. It contained these words, Dear Paco, meet me at the town square at noon on Sunday. All is forgiven, your father. That Sunday at noon, 800 men by the name of Paco showed up at the town square. They all came seeking the forgiveness from their fathers. Colossians 2.14 says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. Folks, God wants us to be reconciled to Him and have fellowship with Him. All is forgiven. We have an advocate. We have a propitiation. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ the righteous. Will you accept your guiltiness and receive His forgiveness? Because you have an advocate.